Well, I wonder how much you think about the future. I suppose to some extent we're always thinking about it, what we will do later today, tomorrow, uh, or next week, or further, further afield. Recent events, of course, have changed that and meant that in one sense we're unable to see more than a few days ahead. And as well as being disruptive, it's unnerving when you can't plan uh, or when you don't know what's going to happen. Well, tonight I'd like us to think about preparing for the future, not in the sense of tomorrow or next week or next year even, but eternity, the time beyond this life. Because one thing is sure, that we will all die at some point. We don't know where, we don't know when, but we can be sure it will happen. So it makes a lot of sense to get ready for that time. So what will happen after death? Well, there are different ways that you might answer that question. Perhaps you're someone who expects to go to heaven, but perhaps you don't often think much about it or what it will be really like. You know, perhaps it's a bit like uh, a young person thinking about their pension, uh, that you see heaven as something that will be great when it happens. But there's plenty of time to to look forward to that and think about it later. Uh, And as a result, you're maybe unclear about what will what will happen when it actually takes place. Well, in that scenario, I think the likely result is that we remain too attached to this life and perhaps even might be a bit disappointed if we went to heaven tomorrow at not having achieved our ambitions here. And we can lose out in terms of anticipation and joyfully living now in the light of what's to come. We can tend to see this life only as something to be endured uh, before the permanent holiday that we can think of as heaven to come. Or perhaps your answer to that question might be that Everything will end at death, that this life is all there is, and that dying will be like a light being switched off and there is no more. Well, the inevitable result of that view is that we have to try and pack into this life as much uh, experience as we can, you know, to make as much money as possible, to have uh, uh, great experiences and pleasure, to travel to lots of different places. But surely the belief that there's nothing beyond death takes away the whole purpose of life. Um, You know, that it has no meaning, that we're just really a bunch of chemicals who live for a few years and then are snuffed out. A very bleak prospect. Well, it's interesting to observe that although many people would say they take that view of death, when it comes to a funeral, the person who's died is often spoken of as being in a better place or as looking down on us. or as resting in peace, you know, implying that they continue to exist uh, in some way, in some place. Well, tonight's passage that we're going to look at, Revelation chapter 21, can help us in both of these situations, giving us the right view of heaven, encouraging us to look forward to it, to anticipate it, to long for it, and to live now in the light of it. Um, And the passage also corrects the view that there's nothing beyond death by giving us a shocking warning Um, that uh, to those who think that this life is it. So let's get started. Then we see in in chapter 21 of Revelation, firstly, a glorious future. Verse one, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. Book of Revelation was written by John based on a series of visions that he had. And each time he says he starts a section with then I saw, we know that it's uh, the start of a new vision or a new section of the book. Well, what's he talking about here? What's what's he seeing in this vision? Well, it's about a new heaven and a new earth. 
For a long time in my Christian life, I was confused about what will happen to believers after they die. Uh, There's talk of heaven, there's talk of a new heaven, there's talk of a new earth, uh, and I'm still far from having it all worked out. But uh, although some of the finer details are not described fully, the Bible does make clear for us enough so that we can have an overall understanding. It tells us, for example, that when a believer dies, uh, his or her soul will go immediately to heaven. Think of Jesus saying to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. Elsewhere in the Bible, for example, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, it tells us that when Christ comes again, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. In other words, the bodies of those who've already died will rise and be renewed and will enter the new heaven and the new earth. Those who are still alive at that point will be transformed in their bodies and taken directly into the new heaven and new earth. So here John is talking about the time after Christ has come again. Physically, what does the new heaven and new earth mean? Well, it's hard to say, but it's generally accepted that it will be this earth renewed rather than somewhere else completely. And certainly everything that's broken about the existing earth will be taken away. So in that sense, we have here the reversal of the fall. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 8. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. The old order that has passed away is the order that keeps everything groaning now. This will be done away with and the world will operate on a completely different basis. The idea of it still being this earth is reinforced by verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Coming down there implies that it is this earth made new rather than the earth being destroyed and us continuing to exist in some spiritual realm. This verse refers to a bride and a bridegroom. Where else do we see that talked about? Well, back in Revelation chapter 19, just a few pages back, it talks of the wedding supper of the Lamb. Uh, And this is in the sense of the church and Christ. The church is the bride. Christ is the bridegroom, the husband. So we can conclude then that here in verse 2, the holy city mentioned is not a literal city. It's talking about the church, God's people. And this is about the wedding day. Well, many of you are married. Hopefully you can remember your wedding day uh, and uh, hopefully you have good memories of that day. And even if you haven't been married yourself, you will have, I expect, been present at a wedding. It's a big event, a day of great joy, uh, the end of much anticipation. You know, the long awaited time has come when the bride and her husband can finally be together and share their lives. Well, verse two is a glorious picture like a wedding. And will certainly be a day of great joy for all involved. John goes on in verse three. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. What do you most look forward to about heaven? We can tend to emphasise what's in it for us. No more death or mourning 
or crying or pain, as it says there. What an amazing idea. <clears throat> so different to what we know now. But we mustn't think that that's the extent of it. We can tend to forget that the best part of heaven is what it says in verse 3, that God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. And yes, you know, God lives in our hearts as believers now. But of course, our relationship is marred by sin while we remain on this earth. Then we will be perfect. On this earth, we are present in the body and absent from the Lord, as it says in 2 Corinthians. Then we shall be physically in his presence. As John Begin was reading, did you notice another reference to God dwelling with his people from this passage? It's there in verse 16. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. What's the significance of that? Well, in the Old Testament, God's presence with the Israelites was shown by the tabernacle and later the temple in Jerusalem. The tabernacle was a very large tent that was carried around by the Israelites during their wanderings in the desert. And you can read about it in Exodus 25. It gives very detailed instructions for how it was to be constructed uh, and furnished. And right at the centre of the tabernacle was what's called the most holy place or the holy of holies, where God dwelt. Later, the same thing was applied in the temple. And if you read the detail of uh, the dimensions for the holy of holies, it was a perfect cube. The length, width and height were all the same dimension. Uh, and that's what we have here in verse 16. So it's emphasising that it's here that God dwells in this city among his people and reminding us that this is the same God as the God of the Israelites. But notice the great transformation, you know, in, in the case of the Israelites, only the, the high priest was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies once a year to offer sacrifices. We will be in God's presence continually and there's no longer any need for a tabernacle or temple in heaven. John says in verse 22, uh, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. Do you see that? This is the key of this first great point. It's a glorious future, but not our glory. It's all about God the Father and the Lamb, otherwise known as God the Son the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, just outside of Paris, there is a grand old building, the, Pal the Palace of Versailles. Maybe you visited it, previously occupied by kings of France. Uh, and if you go and visit, you see a beautiful building. You see, uh, as you'd expect in a palace, lots of large rooms filled with beautiful furniture, works of art, chandeliers. Uh, and if you walk out the back, you uh, get this lovely wide-ranging vista of manicured gardens full of fountains and flower beds uh, and so on uh, it's a beautiful place and, and very enjoyable to visit but uh, at the end of the day it's just a building you know you wouldn't meet any residents there you're just going to uh, make a tourist visit to that place contrast that with a visit to Buckingham Palace at the invitation of the Queen perhaps you know you're going to receive an award like an OBE or something of that nature You'd see another very impressive building with grand architecture, with huge rooms, beautiful furniture and artwork. You'd enjoy walking around and taking all of that in. But rather than this just being a tourist visit, the pinnacle would surely be 
that you're there to meet the Queen. You know, she's the longest reigning UK monarch, the head of the Commonwealth. And rather than this just being one stop on a tour of the sights of London, meeting the Queen would be the main event. You'd put on your best clothes. You'd make sure you were there on time and left plenty of time so that you, you wouldn't be late. The fact that it's a personal interaction makes it totally different. Now, that's a very inadequate illustration of what we're talking about here, but it gives some idea of the importance of getting our view of the new heaven and new earth right. It's where God resides and meeting him will be the main event. So how do we prepare for that? Well, in one sense, preparing for having no more death or mourning or crying or pain sounds easy. I I expect we could all do without those immediately. But how do we prepare to spend time in God's presence forever? And how does this glorious future make you feel? You know, surely we need to pray that our only motivation for that wouldn't be avoiding the alternative. But that God, by his Holy Spirit, would cultivate in our hearts a love for him, a relationship with him now, so that living on this earth is a foretaste of what's to come. And going to be in his presence and being joined to Christ in the sense of a bride being joined to a husband would be fulfilment for us. Or to put it negatively, if we call ourselves Christians, but have little interest in worshipping God now or little relationship with him, uh, how will spending eternity in his presence be enjoyable? It's worth reflecting whether we can really honestly sing those words of the hymn that we sometimes sing. When with the ransomed in glory, his face I at last shall see. T'will be my joy through the ages to sing of his love for me. Well, if we can't sing that from the bottom of our hearts, the thought should trouble us and spur us into action daily to walk more closely with him. Well, we need to move on. Uh, We see here in these verses not only a glorious future, but also, sadly, a fearful future. Verses seven and eight. Those who are victorious will inherit all this and I will be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulphur. This is the second death. The things we've been thinking about are not for everyone. Those described here as sinners, those who have never trusted in Christ for forgiveness of sins, will have a very different experience. What's called here the lake of burning sulphur. It's not an easy thing to imagine or talk about. It's a very solemn matter. The idea that those who don't respond to the call of the gospel will be punished in this way. And it's not like this is an unpleasant experience, but you'll get through it. It will be never ending. The Bible says that once we're there, it's inescapable and irreversible. Just uh, think about that for a minute. And one of the worst things will surely be remembering the warnings that have been given, you know, that, and being unable to do anything about it at that stage. Ruining the day that you heard the Bible's message about sin and punishment, but failed to call on God for forgiveness. Do you believe this? What's your reaction to it? It should get to us. It should cause us to be unsettled and not complacent. In uh, 1741, nearly uh, 300 years ago, Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon, a well-known sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He emphasised the terrible nature of hell and what was in store for those who didn't repent. It was accompanied by a great work of the Holy Spirit and had a great effect and people were very much convicted of their sin. 
uh, of that day, Josh Moody writes this. Such was the impact of his preaching that the people listening shrieked and cried out. And the crying and weeping became so loud that Edwards was forced to discontinue the sermon. Instead, the pastors went down among the people and prayed with them in groups. Many came to a saving knowledge of Christ that day. Well, that's a well-known story. But sadly, there are probably many more examples of those who didn't believe in the reality of hell or the seriousness of disobeying God and ended up paying the price of their unbelief. The Israelites, for example, even as God's chosen people, went through, didn't they, many cycles of disobedience and repentance. And for many of them, their hearts remained hard towards God. Those people thought they would escape God's judgment, but ended up locked out of the promised land. And by the time they realised their mistake, it was too late to repent. Once the remainder of the Israelites were in the promised land, we read that Achan sinned by keeping back some of the plunder from Jericho when they attacked the city. They were told that everything had to be destroyed, but he kept kept back some precious things in his tent. As a result, judgment was enacted on him and he, he and his whole household were put to death. He hadn't learnt from seeing what happened previously when the people disobeyed God. And by the time he realised his error, the time to repent had passed. Well, we could go on. These examples are given to warn us the seriousness of sin and the reality of God's judgment, which is a sure and certain thing coming towards all of us. Well, I don't know if you've ever seen those those YouTube videos where a large container ship is approaching a dock uh, and it becomes clear at, at some point that the ship is not going to stop and slow down in time it's on a collision course and the whole thing seems to happen in slow motion the ship glides through the water until the moment of impact you see the pier or the dock crumpling up and people running in all directions to escape any gantries or cranes that are there for unloading just fold up like matchwood and it's hard to imagine that any human effort could stop the ship at that point you know even if you had a a rope with a hundred men on the end of it pulling They'd just get dragged along. But where did the problem start? Well, it started, of course, with the captain some time before, perhaps not paying attention or being distracted from his duties. um, Or perhaps he's forgotten his training that would have told him to apply the brakes uh, or rather put the engines in reverse a few miles back uh, in order to stop in time. And now you can imagine him kicking himself, regretting his carelessness which would now surely cost him his job and potentially even lead to prosecution. Well, the point of the illustration is clear. Don't be like that captain. While we've got a chance to influence events, take that opportunity. Judgment is coming slowly and steadily and can't be stopped. Don't be distracted or forget to heed the warnings you've been given. And if you haven't already taken action, believe that these things are real and true and call on God today to forgive your sins through the Lord Jesus Christ. So we come in conclusion then to our third point, know your future. As we said at the beginning, knowing the future and being able to plan for it is a good thing. We've seen that there are two destinations after death. How can we be sure of which one we are heading for? How can we know with certainty? Well, we need assurance, don't we? Assurance is very important, but sadly it's something that eludes many Christians. In 1654, one of the Puritans, Thomas Brooks, wrote a book all about assurance 
He called it heaven on earth. And his point was that we can only live joyful and fulfilled lives here and now uh, if we know what we uh, what we are heading for at the end of our lives, if we know where we are going. And having that assurance is like a foretaste of heaven here on earth. The book contains very practical advice and in, in common with other books from the period, just by reading the chapter headings, you can get a lot of what the book is saying. Chapter three is titled Hindrances and Impediments that Keep Poor Souls from Assurance with the Means and Helps to Remove Those Impediments and Hindrances. And then there are 10 subheadings for that chapter. The despairing of obtaining mercy, the disputing about things too high for our thoughts, the lack of self-examination, the entertaining of mistaken views about God's work of grace, the grieving of the Holy Spirit by the believer, the judging of spiritual things by mere feelings, the indulging of laziness and carelessness, the neglect of duties, the love of the world, the cherishing of secret sins. Plenty of practical things we can do or avoid doing in order to have more assurance and have a foretaste of heaven here on earth. From our passage, the answer to this question of assurance is surely in verse 27. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Well, this verse has a positive and a negative side to it. The negative is about purity, ridding ourselves from sin. If we claim to be the Lord's but go on living in sin, we can't expect to enter this city. And the importance of obedience is nothing unusual elsewhere in the Bible. Peter says in his second letter, work to make your calling and election sure. Jesus says in John 14, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. Matthew Henry once said that the Bible's warnings are intended to scare us out of our sins, not scare us out of our wits. So putting off our sin and seeking to be obedient to God's word is an important part of demonstrating the change that's taken place in the heart of a believer and is very much a part of insurance of assurance. Finally, the positive part of verse 27 is about making sure our names are written down. You've probably been to a restaurant where you have to make a, a reservation. You enter at the door and they ask for your name and show you to a table. If you want to eat there, you make sure you get your name down in the reservation book. You find out how to do that, either by phoning or visiting the restaurant or going on their website. Uh, and sometimes for a popular restaurant, you have to do that months in advance and it takes planning. Uh, but if you really want to eat there, you make the effort to get your name down. Well, I'm sure you'll agree that what we're talking about here is far more important than any meal and any dinner reservation. So make sure you get your name down in the Lamb's Book of Life. Let's uh, pray. Let's all pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, there is a glorious future that awaits believers for those who are trusting in you. Eternity spent in your presence and the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to prepare for that day by seeking to obey you and serve you in this life. And we pray that the reality of hell would motivate us to make sure of our salvation and seek with greater urgency to share the gospel with others so that they too can know forgiveness of sin. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, we're going to sing uh, a song that looks forward to the time when we'll be in uh, God's presence face to face with him, those that are trusting in the Lord Jesus. So let's sing There is a Higher Throne. Let's uh, pray to close. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Saviour, be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.